Take your Bibles and join me in Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 26 today, and we're going to dip a toe into chapter 12, just verse 1 today. And we're going to move around a little bit. I'm going to take you up into Hebrews 11. We're going to look at Acts chapter 7 today, but we're going to begin in Genesis 11, and we're in the middle of yet another genealogy. And I know that's not everybody's favorite kind of scripture, a genealogy, but this is a very important one because in it, we will be introduced to a a specific person. We're going to be given a name, and this is the name of a rather towering figure in your Bible. In fact, he's the namesake of this section of our study of Genesis. We call this the Chronicles of Abraham. So look with me now in Genesis 11, verse 26, it says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered, and here's the name we're waiting for, Abram. Or as you might pronounce it, my good Jewish brother down here, Abram, but we're going to call him Abram because we're American. (laughs) Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And it says, now these are the generations of Terah. And Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so you're starting to put it together here because of the the uh, the, the conditions and, and the circumstances that this is, in fact, Abraham. But he doesn't start off with that name. He starts off called Abram. God will give him the name Abraham later. But what you need to know about this man, Abram, is that he is a paradigm of something. And throughout history and culture, there have been people that we consider to be the pinnacle of their respective fields. Uh, They they represent something. They, They really define a concept or an activity. If you were to Google who is the greatest basketball player of all time, what name is going to pop up? I know you're going to have some guys say, oh, LeBron. It's Michael Jordan. I just want you to know that. We're in North Carolina. We're nailing that down. It's Michael Jordan. If you were to Google who's the greatest scientist of all time, you could make a case for a lot of guys. But the the picture that's going to pop up is Albert Einstein. That's just the most likely one. If you were to ask who is the greatest movie villain of all time, American Film Institute did a list a few years ago. They said that the greatest movie villain, almost unanimously, people said, it's Darth Vader. It's Darth Vader. He's intimidating. He's daunting. All right? Now, the greatest example of faith in your Bible is Abraham. He is the one figure that people point to as a man of faith, okay? And the Bible does this. The Bible gives us individuals that picture different character traits. You want to know about excellence? You look at the life of Joseph. You want to know about uh, boldness? You look at the Apostle Paul. You want to know about courage? You look at Daniel. But Abraham is our model for faith. How important is faith? Is Is faith important to God? You better believe it. In fact, in Hebrews 11, chapter 5, it says, And without faith... It's impossible to please him. 
You can't please God apart from faith. It's the only thing that matters to him. He doesn't care how good looking you are. He doesn't care how tall you are, thankfully in my case. He doesn't care how much money you've got, how, how many accomplishments you have, your battlefield prowess or anything like that, not even your religiosity. All that matters to God is faith. And since that's what matters to God, we better understand what faith is. We better get it defined correctly. What is faith? How do you define it? You know, Mark Twain said that faith is believing what you know ain't so. Now, I reject that out of hand. It's a rather folksy adage that a lot of people have adopted. And I regret to say that many in Christian circles today have some variation on that definition. There are many Christians who will tell you, if you ask them what is faith, they will describe it as a blind leap. As though you're, you know, Indiana Jones in that one scene in that movie where he steps off into nothing and he's caught by this invisible bridge. Is that what faith is? What is faith? How does the Bible define it? In Hebrews 11, once again, in chapter 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. A couple of fascinating turns of phrase here. The assurance of things hoped for. Do assurance and hope go together? If you've got a King James Version, instead of the word assurance, it's got the word uh, uh, substance. Substance is tangible. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can hold it in your hands. Does that have anything to do with hope? It wouldn't seem so in our human understanding. Hope seems intangible, but what you need to understand is the intangible can become tangible through faith, through authentic faith. It's a present expectation of something yet to be fully revealed. That second phrase, the conviction of things not seen, there's a Greek term there, elegos. It's a legal term. It's at home in a court of law. Uh, conviction. When someone is convicted, they are based on evidence. That, that conviction is going to be based on some evidence. This is the evidence of something never before visually witnessed. And so we see that played out. We've already seen it played out in the book of Genesis. Noah was building a boat in a landlocked country 120 years before the advent of rain. That's faith. Why was he doing this? Because someone, someone told him what was coming. And his actions revealed it to be true. His faith was not believing something in the absence of proof. The object of belief was something that God himself had said. And, and Noah's faith was the proof of that object. And we look at this man, Abraham, and he is a paradigm of faithfulness. But I want you to understand something. It wasn't always that way. Abraham was not always a standard bearer of faith. You know, Michael Jordan was not always Michael Jordan. When he was in high school, the story goes, he was cut from the varsity team. His coach put him back on JV. He was clumsy. He needed to develop, all right? Uh, You think of Albert Einstein. He wasn't always Albert Einstein. He didn't even speak in complete sentences until age five. Darth Vader wasn't always Darth Vader. We can hear that intimidating baritone voice. Luke, I am your father. You know? And yet, if you'd been on the set of Star Wars back in the 70s, 
James Earl Jones was not the guy in that suit. There was a Scotsman by the name of David Prowse. And so when they were filming those scenes, it was David Prowse saying the lines. So it wasn't the voice of Vader as we know it. Prowse had kind of a high, nasally, Scottish tone. Can you imagine hearing that come out of Darth Vader? What if you'd been in the theater in 1977 and Darth Vader, you, he, he speaks and you hear, You're a spy. Take her away. People would have laughed their way out of that theater. It would have been a one-and-done B-movie. There would have been no pop culture phenomenon, no further film. The only good thing is we wouldn't have had to sit through those last three movies. Anyway, Abraham was not always Abraham. He was Abram at first, but not only was his name different, Abraham, or Abram, grew up in a place called Ur. This is in Mesopotamia. It's, it's present-day Iraq. And it was one of the places that was very near to the Tower of Babel episode that we looked at last week. And the descendants of Shem settled there. They were Semites. They were, so Abram was descended from Shem. And what Ur is known as, Ur of the Chaldeans it's called, it was known as a center of commerce, of development, of advancement, of technology, and of pagan worship. There was a giant ziggurat in Ur, that's a sort of a pyramid structure, and they worshipped the moon god known as Suen, later called Sin. And Suen was the greatest god in a pantheon of gods, and everybody in Ur worshipped all of these various false gods. And Terah, who we read about in this genealogy, the father of Abram, tradition tells us he was a manufacturer and a peddler of idols. Little figurines that people would pray to, false gods. Terah was a pagan idolater, as was his family, including Abram. And so what you need to understand is Abram was a pagan. He worshipped false idols. Think about that. Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and worshipped many gods. And this is the guy that takes up so much real estate in our Old Testament, he was not some closeted monotheist. People have tried to say that about him. No, Joshua 24, 2 confirms this. It says, and Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. He was ungodly. He was lost. You know what that means? Abram started out where you started out. He started out where I started out. And so in your notes, here's our big idea at the top. Abraham isn't just a model of faithfulness. He's an example of how faith develops. And so we're going to see faith divided in Abram's life into three stages. And each of these stages is going to occur in a different geographic location. All right, And as we trace that journey, we're going to learn about this man Abraham. And we're going to learn about faith and a little about us. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just pray your blessing upon our time in your word, God. May we look at this man not as an unattainable, uh, lofty example that is inscrutable, God, but as a human being, as a man that you did not choose based on his merits. You chose him based on your sovereignty. And I pray that we will learn from this, God, and that we will understand these stages of faith and what is and is not pleasing faith in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at the first stop here. Geographically, 
It's a place called Ur. You are Ur of the Chaldees. And here we are going to look at Abram's intellectual faith, his intellectual faith. And it says in Genesis eleven thirty one, 31, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then we move into chapter 12, in verse 1, you see that it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And what comes after that that we're not going to get into today is the full promise, the full covenant that God makes with Abraham. And we call that, we call that the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm going to get into that later on. But where is this taking place? Where does this call on Abram's life happen? It looks as though it takes place in this land called Terah. Or excuse me, Haran. Haran, where they have settled here. Now, what you have to understand about the Bible is that sometimes you don't get the full picture. Sometimes you have to go outside of a text to really understand everything about it. And that's what we're going to do right now. So I want you to keep your place where you are. And join me in Acts chapter 7. And there we're going to find a guy named Stephen. And he's preaching a sermon. And in that sermon, just as in this sermon, he's talking about Abraham. And so in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before, I want you to underline that word before. Before he lived in Haran. Where did Abram live before he lived in Haran? He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And there, verse 3, he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Okay? So God calls Abram. He says, Leave your home, leave your family, your kin, and go to the land. I will show you. So he says that in Ur. We know he said it in Haran. So it turns out God calls Abram twice. He calls him first in Ur, and that is the initial call of God upon his life. Now, I want you to look at the language that Stephen uses. He says that God appeared to Abram. God spoke to Abram, all right? And so God is manifested before this man. Abram encounters God visually and audibly. Can you imagine what that was like? Where was Abram in Ur? What was he doing when God first grabbed hold of him? Revealed himself to Was Abram up on top of that ziggurat with a bunch of pagan idolaters? Were they, were they howling at the moon? Were they chanting to suend the moon god when, when Yahweh, the true God, speaks his name? Does Abram hear God's voice and turn about and, and try to find the source of this address? Does he hear it repeatedly? Does he think he's going insane? Does he leave that ziggurat and run out of its doors and into the desert? Does he scramble to the top of a hill to find a vantage point where he can look up at the moon directly and address who he may believe to be Suen, this God he's worshipped his entire life? How does God reveal himself to Abram? Does God speak to him and say, I am not Suen? I am not this false God that your people fall all over themselves to worship. In fact, 
I made the moon. I made the sun. I made the stars. I made you, Abram. And I got a plan for you. Get up and leave your home. Leave your family. Go to the place that I will show you. Abram has encountered the true God. And this is what you need to understand about this intellectual faith. In your notes, this faith believes the right things. He's got everything he needs to believe. He knows God exists. He's encountered him. He recognizes God's power. He hears God's voice. He knows God's plan. God told him some details, not not fully revealed the plan, but told him some instructions. Abram understands something about God's authority, God's purpose. But what we soon learn is that although he had an encounter with God, folks, encounter is not enough. People can encounter God and still not have everything they need to walk in relationship with him. This is informational truth. This is experiential. He possesses uh, this information via the encounter, but I want you to note that Abram still balks at this call. He does not go to the place that God is directing him to go. It says in verse 4, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Was Haran the final destination? No, And so what we can assume happens in Haran is a second call. God speaks to him a second time. And then Stephen says after his father died in Haran, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So God's call didn't happen in Haran originally. It happened in Ur, and he had to repeat himself in Haran. And that means that Abram waffled. Abram did not follow through. Abram did not fully obey. He got moving, but did he leave his family? No, he took him with him. His father came along. His brothers came along. Where did they end up? In Haran. Was that where God was ultimately leading him? No. So why didn't he keep going? I submit to you because Abram felt he had obligations other than God. And so we, we understand something about the cost of God's call on our life. When Jesus was calling people to follow him in Luke 9, he calls a guy, he says, follow me. And the man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Sounds like a reasonable request, doesn't it? Did Jesus say, ah, by all means, tend to your family? No. In verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Does that sound harsh? Odds are this guy's father wasn't dead yet. He was rather aged. And he's saying, can you just wait for my father to die and then I'll follow you, Lord? There are priorities on the life of the Christ follower. And so there is is a precedent. It's the word of God that trumps all human bonds. Now, don't use that as an excuse to say, honey, I'm leaving you and the kids and I'm going to the mission field. All right? There are covenantal relationships that God has instituted that we are not to forsake if we are committed to those. But, but the, our love for God must trump everything in our life. And this man, Abram, who the Bible will eventually call the friend of God, at first is a novice in the faith, just as we were, just as I was, as you are. So that should be encouraging to us if we look at this great patriarch, his humble beginnings. Everybody starts out the same. We don't start out based on our own merits. God chooses us. So now I want us to go back to Hebrews 11. Abraham's not in Ur anymore. He's come with this feeble, weak measure of faith that he's got. He's in Haran. 
And so we're looking at this second stop here in your notes. He's in Haran, and we're going to see what will become an authentic faith. He's going to make a jump from intellectual to authentic, or what we would call today a saving faith. A saving faith. Hebrews 11, verse 8, and I'm going to read this from the New American Standard Version. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place uh, which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left, not knowing where he was going. He left there, not knowing where he was going. And so here, here's what I want you to understand about this faith that is evidenced in Haran on the part of Abram. In your notes, this faith surrenders to the right things. An intellectual faith believes the right things. That's not enough. A, a saving faith, an authentic faith, surrenders to the right things. And I want to show you some characteristics of this faith so that it will be unmistakable. First of all, in your notes, this kind of faith is always initiated by God. It starts with God. Abram's family was polytheistic. He had no knowledge of the one true God. They served other gods. We've established that. They lived in a pagan culture, in a pagan city. They were less than 150 miles from the future site of Babylon, for crying out loud. This man is mired in wickedness, in idolatry. Some have tried to make excuses for Abram at that phase of his life. They've tried to say, well, he was, he was a closet monotheist. No, he wasn't. They say, well, he was a moral man. He was an upright man. That's why God chose him. He was, he was the most moral of the pagans. The most moral of the pagans? That's like talking about the best Yoko Ono song. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Abram was not some righteous volunteer that saw a need in God's plan and presented himself as the solution. Here I am. Here I am, God. You know, why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian because you just innately deduced the merits of Jesus Christ? You're that sharp. God, God, God uh, welcomed you in because of your, your uh, 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 aptitude. No. God chooses who he wills. And God chooses and commands Abram to go to this place that Abram knows nothing about. Uh, nowhere do we see that people come on their own merits. The language Stephen uses is that God appeared to Abram. Abram didn't seek him out. God removed Abram. He took him. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You were called according to his purpose. There were lots of Semites other than Abram that God could have chose. But he chose this guy. What was God's plan? He was going to create a nation. He's not going to govern all nations of the earth. They are ungovernable. And so God is going to create a nation. He's going to use one man to do it. Would you have chosen this guy out of all the Semites there in Ur? If I were God, I would not have picked Abram. I would have picked some Ken and Barbie that were virile looking, that were nubile, that I, you know, looked like they were, had some procreative ability. God doesn't go that route. He picks the most unlikely candidate. First of all, he's a pagan. Secondly, he's an old pagan. The equipment doesn't work anymore. And he's married to someone who is equally old. And so this is the most oddball choice. You know, a couple of, of dry wells here. Abe and Sarai, just, you know, heathen, childless, and still living with his parents. Bad choice. Why did God do this? 
so he would get the glory. So God would get the glory. So this is always initiated by God. Secondly, this kind of faith, it relies only on God's word. It relies only on God's word. He went to a place not knowing where he was going. God called him. He said, get up and go to the place that I will show you. So he knows God's going to get him there, but he doesn't know where it is. God didn't give him a picture, didn't tell him a name, didn't give him coordinates, didn't give him directions, didn't tell him how long he'd be there, didn't tell him how he'd survive once he was there. He just said, get moving. Leave it all behind. Leave your family. Leave your home. You could bring the wife. You're going to need her. But go, and I will show you where you're going. You know, people don't operate that way. They need clarity. Ah, clarity. Clarity is nice to have. It's a luxury, isn't it? I've had so many people come to me. Pastor Scott, would you pray for me? Yeah, what do you need? I need clarity. You know what? Mother Teresa, there's a story, and I don't share a lot of Mother Teresa stories, but I like this one. She asked a guy how she could pray for him. He said, pray, for, pray that I would have clarity. And she said, no. No, I will pray that you have faith. Faith trumps clarity. Clarity has little to do with faith. If faith is the only thing that pleases God, that means we don't come to God based on empirical evidence. We don't come to God uh, having demanded proof first. You know, uh, we come by faith. Uh, where do you learn to trust that something is so? You, you take it by authority of someone that you respect. You know, if you hear something from someone and you don't really know them all that well, you're not likely to believe it. Now, if somebody else comes alongside them, okay, well, it's got a little more credibility. And then more people come alongside. And so there's, there's credibility in numbers sometimes. Remember that thing on the Internet a few years ago with the dress? It looked black and blue. And some people said, no, it's white and gold. Remember? I looked at that picture this dress looks black and blue, and they say, some people say it's white and gold. I'm like, nah, nobody says that's white and gold, black and blue. And then, then you meet somebody, and they're like, no, I, I look at it, I see white and gold. You're like, what? Oh, you're in on it. You're trying to fool me. And then another person, oh, it's white and gold. And you're like, huh? And then more. And you're like, am I, am I crazy? What, am I going insane here? And then someone you really respect. And you're like, oh my goodness, maybe it is white and gold. And then you start to, by the way, it was black and blue. It was black and blue. Uh, my point is the word of many carries weight. The word of someone you respect carries weight. The word of God carries the most weight. God called Abram. You better pay attention to that. You live by faith, not sight. When Philip went to Nathanael after spending the day with Jesus, he said, come, we've met the one that the scriptures call the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What did Philip say? He said, come and see. Come and see. He didn't say, see, then come. He said, you come first. You come by faith. And so this faith is initiated by God, and it is reliant on his word alone. And then number three in your notes, this faith, its response is obedience. Obedience. Abram obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive. He obeyed. Uh, after God's call in Haran, Abram then moves from something to something. He didn't know what it was. Back in Ur, you could have said to Abram, do you believe that there's one, one true God? Yes, I do. I, I, I've met him. Okay, do you believe that he's all-powerful? Yes. You believe that there's no God but him? Yes. Do you believe that he has a plan? Yes. Do you trust that plan? 
Yes. Do you believe he's powerful enough to protect you? Yes. All right, then pack your bags. No. No. He had a merely intellectual faith. He assented to specific ideas about God. It was not a biblical, authentic faith. It's not until he leaves Haran and he goes where God calls him that we can say that he had the kind of faith that saves, that justifies, because obedience is manifested in that faith. What does James say? James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can it? No. Do works save us? No. We're saved by grace through faith. But true, authentic, saving faith always has works. You can easily believe something. It's not going to save you. The Greeks had a belief system, but they were moral perverts. You can even believe the right things. You know, uh, James goes so far as to say, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You ever been to an open casket funeral? I understand some people need that. They need that kind of closure. I find them a little creepy, but you know, uh, that's not my loved one in that casket, but, but I understand the need for that. But sometimes you can go to one of those and they can be laying there, that body, and they can look pretty good. The embalmer could do a good job. The mortician could do a good job. They can do their hair. They're dressed nice. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they've positioned their mouth in such a way. I don't know. They make their cheeks a little rosy. And all of that, they can look the part, but inside, they're just a shell. They're just a shell. You can look the part. You can have an intellectual faith. But if you don't have works, it's not an authentic faith. There's nothing there on the inside. You're inwardly dead. If you say, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, I believe in the Bible, but you have not works, there's no transformation, there's no inward change, you're just the handiwork of a mortician. That's it. Have you turned from sin and self? You can't just believe the right things. James says, you say there's one God good for you. Even the demons believe and tremble. Are you saved? Have you turned in obedience? And then fourth, this faith often occurs when God removes obstacles. In Acts 7, verse 4, Stephen says, After his father died, God removed him from there into this land, this land in which you are now living. When Abram's father died, that's when he responded. Often you will meet people who, who are born again, and they will tell you, I deliberated, I deliberated, I deliberated. I knew about God, I knew about Christ, I knew the gospel. But I never came in true saving faith until. And they will then recount a story. There'll be something dramatic in their life. There'll be something, some loss that they experienced. Some failure of a career, of a marriage, uh, of, of, you know, some medical crisis that God used to bring them. It could be regarding salvation. It could be just surrendering a portion of your life. Maybe, maybe going into ministry. A few months ago we had Jonathan Evans here. He spoke at a fundraiser for GCA. Jonathan Evans is the son of Dr. Tony Evans, who pastors in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I've known that family. I've known Jonathan since he was a teenager. Uh, I, w I went to college with his brother. He, he was always a great athlete, Jonathan. He played football in high school. He went on to Baylor University, played ball there, had a brief NFL career, and now he's a pastor at his father's church. And we were catching up. And I said, Jonathan, when did you know that God was calling you to, to be a pastor? He said, I've always known. I said, really? He goes, yep, I ran from it. 
I ran from it hard. I fought God. I made all kinds of excuses. I told God, I'm a running back. I'm an NFL running back. I'm not going to be a pastor. I said, well, what happened? He said, tore my Achilles. He said, I collapsed on the ground. I said, I've heard that so painful and excruciating. I said, did you scream? He said, I laughed. I said, you laughed? He said, yes. I said, why? Why did you laugh? He said, because I knew what God was doing. He said, he, he, he had to take away my excuse. He had to take football from me because he was calling me to be a pastor. And football was keeping me from surrendering to that. And God can do that. God can take away the thing that you have placed on his throne. That's his seat. And he will do what he's got to do. And let me tell you, that is an act of mercy. Because you are always better off when God is on the throne of your life. And if he's got to do a little amputation in your life, you will be better off for it. It'd be better to let it go before he has to do that. But sometimes he does, and that's what he does to Abram. He takes Terah. He takes his father. His father was a pagan. His father was an idolater. God was not going to bring Abram into the land of promise and drag idolatry with him. Some people say they want to follow God, but they want to bring all of their lifestyle baggage along. God's not going to let you do that. You don't come with all of your baggage. He's going to change you from the inside out. And so we look at this. We've seen this intellectual faith in Ur where he knows the truth. He understands it, but he doesn't act. We've seen his authentic faith in Haran where God removes the obstacle. And now he steps out and surrenders to him. And he finally leaves Mesopotamia altogether and he, he heads into this land. Abraham didn't know the name of that land. We do. Today it's called Israel. But back then it was called Canaan. And so in your notes in Canaan, we're going to see Abram's abiding faith. His abiding faith. This is the faith that we are to live by. You are born again. That is authentic faith. And then there is a faith that you live by. The righteous live by faith. Habakkuk says. Look how Abram lived. Now I want us to look at Hebrews 11 verse 9. It says, By faith he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Can I give you my personal view on how to know when someone is really rooted and established and, and living with an abiding faith? I believe that there are people that are born again. I believe that there are people who are saved, but they are not walking in that identity. They are not walking in an abiding faith. They are not living as a stranger in a strange land. When I see someone who has that they have that awareness that this world is not my home. I am, I am a sojourner here. I am not here to accumulate all of the possessions that I can. I am here on mission. It's a temporary stop. The world that I know has an expiration date. The Lord is coming back. And I believe that. That one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it will be much better then than it is now. And so I am not going to spend my time investing in the present. I'm going to invest in eternity, in the future. And if, if someone is not doing that, even if they are a Christian, 
What are they doing? If they're pursuing the here and the now and the accolades and the wealth and all of the wonderful things, you know what they're doing? They're just arranging the pictures in a burning building. They're just arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Are you doing that or are you looking ahead? Are you consumed with eternity? Are you investing in that which lasts forever? The souls of people. The word of God. It doesn't mean that we're to live as hobos and hermits. It doesn't mean that you don't uh, want to put a roof over your family's head. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't walk everywhere you go. We've got to transport ourselves in this day and age. Listen, I think that it's, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, enjoying the world that you inhabit. But when you make it your God, when you make it your, your ever-present focus, you're missing out on abundant life. And so this is beyond belief. This is beyond surrender. In your notes, this faith values the right things. It values the right things. You show me what you value, I'll show you what you are. I think of the pandemic and how things got stripped away from our churches. There was a lot of churches that had all these big events, all these programs, all these concerts and things. Couldn't do that during the pandemic. You know the churches that thrived in the pandemic? was the churches that got the basics. They got the basics. Study of God's word. Community with one another. Sharpening one another. They didn't rely on the fantastic and the visually impressive and the experiential. And Christianity could dress itself up with that stuff and we've got to blow it away like, a, like seeds on a dandelion. You've got to reveal what matters to Christ. There's a missionary named David Livingston. David Livingston as a young man. He was offered a scholarship to Cambridge University, and he turned it down to do missionary work in Africa. And after he turned it down, somebody got in his face from Cambridge, and they said, Young man, don't you want to make a name for yourself in life? He said, Yes. Which life? Which life? That's an alien in a foreign land. He's not about making, himself, making a name for himself right here, right now. He's living according to the next life. You know, Nick Saban, coach of Alabama, just retired recently. Greatest coach in the history of the NCAA. He's got more wins, more accolades. Everybody knows that he's the greatest. And for a few days after his retirement, that's all you heard is that he's irre irreplaceable. He's one of a kind. And yet I, I can't help but notice they got a new name on the door of his office. Took two days. You can be replaced in this life. You will be replaced in this life. We all get forgotten. We all fade away. So we need to fix our eyes on eternity because only what's done for Christ will last. So where are you living today? Are you living in the land of promise? Are you thriving? Are you abiding in your faith? Or are you somewhere in Haran? Are you stuck back at Ur with an intellectual faith? Many of you probably saw this on social media. Uh, we have a gentleman that attends our church with some regularity. We prayed for him on Wednesday night. There's a fellow by the name of Bill Hess. Bill Hess is a Navy veteran. He fought in World War II. He turned 100 last year. I went to his birthday party. He's nearing his 101st birthday. And just last week, I found out Bill fell down, broke his hip. 
And so we prayed for him on Wednesday night. And it was just a, a day or two later that I got a call from our friend, goes to our church, Jeff Terrell, who has loved Bill, who has walked with Bill. And Jeff had told me some time back in the past year that, that Bill Hess, 100 years of age, regular attendee of our church, has never put his faith in Jesus Christ. Did not know the Lord. And that's when you check your watch and you're like, well, how much time we got? And I'm here to tell you that late last week I got a call from Jeff Terrell and he said, Pastor Scott, I just came from the hospital. I went in to see Bill. I asked him how he's doing. And he looked at me and he said, I've lived my whole life for myself. And he said, Bill, would you like to change that now? Would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ? And Bill said, yes. He'd spent a century in Ur. He was stuck. He knew all the things. He's been here. He's heard me talk. He's been around all of you. But he finally responded to the voice that matters most, and that's the voice of Jesus Christ. And he trusted him as his Lord and Savior. Bill came to faith. Ironically, he's about the same age as Abraham was. I don't think Bill's going to populate any nations. But where are you at? Where are you at? Are you in Ur? Have you made it as far as Haran? Or are you living in the land of promise today? Let's bow. Heavenly Father, I just pray for anybody here who has made a decision for you. They've come to a realization, God, that you're calling them. And you're calling them to more than something merely intellectual. You are calling them to step into a life of adventure, a life of surrender, a life like they've never known, to, to have the conviction of things never before seen, the assurance of things hoped for. And that assurance, because of who it comes from, is rock solid. And there is no foundation that we could stand upon that is any surer than that. And so I pray that people would give their life fully to you today, Lord to trust you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before you